This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Network. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Network does not take responsibility for the statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about management with a government executive who is changing the way government does business. The Business of Government Hour is produced by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, which was created in 1998 to encourage discussion and research into new approaches to improving government effectiveness. You can find out more about the center by visiting us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. And now, the Business of Government Hour. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and leadership fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. Today, I am at the annual conference of the American Society of Public Administration, ASPA, in Washington, D.C. ASPA is the leading interdisciplinary public service organization that advances the art, science, teaching, and practice of public and nonprofit administration. ASPA's annual conference provides a yearly opportunity to bring together public administrators from across the discipline. The 2019 annual conference theme is A Call for Action, Advancing Public Service. What is the Senior Executives Association, and how does it seek to build a leadership pipeline for the U.S. federal government? We will explore these questions and so much more with our very special guest, Bill Valdez, President of the Senior Executives Association. Bill, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Thank you. Bill, would you give us an overview of the history and mission of the Senior Executives Association? Sure. Uh, so SEA was created in uh, 1980, shortly after the Civil Service Reform Act of 1978 created Senior Executive Service. And the SES were created to do basically two different things. Uh, one is serve as the bridge between uh, the political world and the career world. Uh, and then second, uh, to be able to uphold, you know, the civil service merit principles. Um, people don't usually make that connection. Uh, but at the same time that Congress created the SES, they also created the Merit Systems Protection Board uh, and codified the merit principles into law. And uh, I think we've sort of lost that idea that you know there is uh, a reason why the civil service is nonpartisan, thus the bridge between uh, the career world and the political world, but that the SES really were charged with upholding the merit principles. So in 1980, uh, the senior executives at that time said, hey, we need a group that's going to represent our interests and so they formed the association. Uh, for, I think for the first 35 years, up to about 2015, uh, the association really functioned as an advocate for the uh, SES. Make sure they got paid, make sure they got the benefits weren't you know, reduced and take care of things like the Stock Act. But when I took over in uh, 2016, 
uh, I was under a mandate from the board of directors at SEA to take us to the next level. And that next level really was to transform SEA into an association that did more than just represent its members. It participated much more actively in policy debates. It contributed to a leadership pipeline. It did things that we had never done before. So it's an association. I'm wondering, you know, just to give our listeners an understanding of, of how, how is it organized? How do you operate? How do you fund it? Well, uh, we're a very small association. We're a membership organization, so we get you know some of our revenue from uh, from that. We get other revenue from uh, corporate partnerships, uh, and then we also uh, have recently been getting money from research from foundations to do original research, including from the IBM center, uh, for the business of government. Uh, we got a grant from you guys just recently. So we are, you know, like most associations, you know, dependent on our members and, you know, the kind of partnerships that we have. Um, we're very lean, you know, we have very small staff, um, and we have a 15-member board of directors. Uh, we rely upon our members to volunteer, to work with us. Um, for example, you know, we had our uh, Presidential Rank Awards Leadership Summit this past December, and we had a heavy, you know, volunteer, you know, core from the SEA members themselves. So what about your role as president? Perhaps you can give us an understanding of your, your responsibilities. What do you do? What's a day in the life? Uh, really, it comes down to two things. Um, I'm the public face of the association. And so I appear up on the hill, you know, I talk to media, uh, I talk with agencies. Um, I was just up at OPM and OMB uh, last week uh, discussing various issues of importance to uh, SEA. And so I work very closely to make sure that our message and our interests are articulated. But then second, I'm responsible for setting the overall strategic direction of SEA. Two years ago, right around this time, we published what we call the, uh, the four pillars, the strategic direction of SEA. And that was the result of about you know, 100 different meetings that we had around town with various stakeholders in Congress, professional societies, et cetera, to understand what the strategic direction of SEA should be, codify that, and then begin working on it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, being the president of an association and uh, putting the four pillars uh, that you folks came up with into uh uh, reality, if you will, you got to be experiencing some challenges. What, what are some of the top challenges you've experienced in the role since 2016? So I think the biggest challenge uh, we have faced is rebranding SEA. Because I, I think, honestly, we were perceived to be the union for senior executives. And uh, that was a well-earned characterization of SEA. What we wanted to do was rebrand SEA to be a thought leader 
because there, there is a real uh, need in the Washington uh, uh, policy debates for the voice of the senior executives. Um, at this point, where the federal government is, the you know we're we're at such a level of political toxicity. Um, you know the two parties are fighting. You know there's endless uh, criticism of the civil service as bungling and incompetent. Government, you know, you look you look at the public opinion polls, and you know the public says that they don't have faith in the in the government to carry out its mission. You know, so back in 1960, when these polls were being done, uh, 75% of Americans had faith in the federal government. Today, it's down into the 25, 30 percentile. And we think that's really a function of two different things. One is um, a sense that, the you know, a sense in the population that the government is not as effective as it should be, and specifically the executive branch. Well, that's ultimately the response of the responsibility of the civil service. And when you get right down to it, the responsibility of the senior career leaders uh, in the federal government. And so we need to repair that. We need to think about how we can modernize government and make it more effective and more efficient uh, and deliver the value that the American taxpayer wants us to deliver. Uh, but then the second thing uh, that I think is really causing this is that we've sort of gone towards tribalism, you know, in the political world. And everybody has their positions and, you know, so they're firmly rooted. And you see members of the Hill, you see you know, places like the Federalist Society, even SEA, you know, government is good, government is bad, you know, tax is good, tax is bad. There's not a nuance, you know, to this kind of discussion, and it polarizes us. And so one of the things that we have been doing uh, in SEA is having conversations with people who would not necessarily, uh, you would not necessarily think we would have much in common with. Like the Heritage Society, the you know the Heritage Foundation, the Federalist Society, and those kinds of groups to say, hey, is there a common ground that we can have, uh, we can find together, uh, to uh, build a coalition of the willing to fix what we all know is wrong in and needs fixing in the federal government. What what has surprised you most since taking over the role? Um, well, the the thing that uh, occurred to me when I first took over was, you know, I'd just gotten out of the federal government, uh, and in the federal government, you get an annual appropriations. Wait a minute, where's my annual appropriations? <laughs> no, you got to work for your money, yeah. you know, and so that came down to, you know, what is the value proposition? You know, what, why would somebody want to either join uh, SEA or, uh, want to work with us in partnership, you know. Uh, so we had to figure out what that value proposition was. And I think what we really figured out was that there was a, a real void uh, in the Washington policy debates. 
And it's a voice that SEA is uniquely capable of, of supplying, which is as a convener, you know, um, which is not necessarily, you know, wasn't obvious to us at first. Um, so when we went around in my first 100 days uh, as SEA president, I visited 89 different groups and said, you know, what do you think our mission is? What do you think our value is? You know, how would you work with us? You know, kind of thing. And the message I heard loud and clear was that the senior executives and career senior leaders, not just SES, but, you know, the, the, the people who run, you know, government uh, as career individuals are a resource that hasn't been tapped uh, to get in, you know, to tap into their expertise to solve big, big problems. So that was kind of eye-opening to me uh, that people believe that. And I'm, and I'm talking about all political spectrum, you know. Yeah, it was, it was pretty consensus. What about your, you mentioned that you were in government. Um, could tell us a little bit about your career path. So I entered government in 94 uh, at the Department of Energy. Uh, and, you know, I was brought in as a technical expert on uh, tech transfer. And because uh, this was right after the Clinton administration came in and they wanted to, they, they didn't call it industrial policy, but they wanted to take advantage of the technologies that were at the national laboratories and uh universities that had been funded by the Department of Energy. So they stood up an office to, you know, really take advantage of the enormous technology, you know, investments that the Department of Energy has done. So that lasted about two years and until the Gingrich Congress came in. And two years later, the Gingrich Congress abolished that office and I had one of my first experiences as a Fed of being riffed. And just for our listeners, riff is reduction in force. Right. Uh, you're fired. You're fired. You know? <laughs> uh, but fortunately, the you rule. Get another detail. Yeah, well, you get a. Uh, you, you the rules of that particular riff were that any other office in the Department of Energy could pick you up, uh, and I was picked up by another office, and. Uh, but then I went uh, over to OSTP uh, and spent a couple of years there uh, working on, you know, very high level technical, I mean, science and technology policy. Uh, and then uh, what made my SES in the Office of Science at the Department of Energy uh, and spent the rest, rest of the time, you know, at the Department of Energy. Uh, working primarily science and technology policy, but also evaluation, budget strategy. Um, and then towards the end of my career, uh, you know, SES can be uh, given directed reassignments. Uh, so I was first directed reassignment to become the chief diversity officer at the department. And I ran the small business office and other things there. And then I was given a directed reassignment to be the director of business services in one of our big operating units uh, where I did procurement and HR and things like that. 
So, you know, I finished my career in that particular job and retired in 2014. So, Bill, given your background, your current role, and I know it's a big priority for SEA around leadership pipeline, building it. And, and the question I have for you is, uh, if, uh, what makes an effective leader? And perhaps you could um, tell us a little bit more about who's influenced your leadership style. Well, I would say that, you know, my leadership style has been most influenced by the people I've had as mentors. I've been very fortunate throughout my life, you know, my career, to have mentors both in and out of government who really, you know, and these weren't formal mentoring you know, kinds of relationships, but just people I admired. And so I sought them out and talked with them and, and worked with them. And, you know, you pick up by osmosis, you know, this kind of thing. But I think, you know, the, the qualities that make a great leader are shared both the private sector, the military, the, you know, and in the nonprofit public sector world. And those are things like, you know, being a humble leader, you know, being a good listener, you know, have, having high emotional intelligence, you know, the kinds of soft skills uh, that are important in a, a leader, regardless of where they're at. But then when you get into the various silos of a military leader versus a, you know, uh, corporate leader versus a public, you know, public sector leader, then you start looking at what are the competencies, you know, that are really important. And what we have found, because we've been doing some study in this area, is that the, the competencies are different in the public sector, and we're not really teaching them. And so, yeah, you, you almost have to go back uh, to the notion of leadership, okay? In the federal government, there is no job classification for a leader, right? Um, it is, you know, we have acquisition specialists, we have SES, which is an executive, which is not necessarily a leader. We have, you know, uh, science and technology experts, all the rest. But there is no defined path to identifying and cultivating leaders in the federal government, nor is there even a definition of what a leader is. Um, and I think if you go back to the way the federal government was created or the civil service was created, uh, there's an explanation for that in the following sense, that the modern civil service was created in 1883 in the Pendleton Act, uh, where uh, this was following all the, you know, uh, scandals in the Grant administration, and then a job seeker, you know, shot President Garfield, you know, because he didn't get the job that he wanted. That was called the spoil system, right? And so Congress said, no, we need to fix this. So they created the civil service in 1883 through the Pendleton Act. And they said it should be merit-based and it should be nonpartisan and it should be professional and it should follow modern management principles. Well, think about that. That was 1883, okay? 
but that's the way the civil service was created. And, and modern management principles back then was very much command and control, very hierarchical. And that's been the legacy, you know, that we've dealt with since then, that you have a command and control structure within the federal government that really prizes discipline, classification. You know, so that's why we have GS 1 through 15, steps 1 through 10 for GS 15s, you know, and why the, I mean, through all the, all the different steps, you know, G, GS classifications. And so the idea is, you know, that you have a, you know, system that has been built up for 100 and some odd years, 140 years, uh, that favors command and control and hierarchy over leadership. Now, in the private sector, they went through the same evolution. And, but they had the ability to break out of that cycle. And so you now see all this literature and training and all these assessments that come out about leadership, right, uh, in, the federal, in the private sector. And so virtually all of the assessment tools, virtually all of the conversation that we currently have about leadership in the federal government is derivative of the, you know, private sector, but we haven't adapted it to the federal sector. That's exactly where SEA is going uh, with an initiative we're calling Public Service Leadership as a Profession. We want to professionalize somebody who wants to have a career in leadership in the federal government, regardless of whether you're a GS1 or, you know, SES, that you need to have certain skills taught to you, you need to have certain experiences. And so we're now trying to define those and we're working with OPM and Hill to see if we can codify some of this into law. What are SEA's key strategic priorities? We will ask its president, Bill Valdez, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center special report, Transforming Government Through Technology. It outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Download Transforming Government Through Technology and all Center reports at businessofgovernment.org. the work of the Government Accountability Office advance public service? What are some of the key leadership challenges facing U.S. federal agencies? Join host Michael Keegan from the 2019 ASPA Annual Conference as he explores these questions and more with Robert Goldenkopf, Director, Strategic Issues, Government Accountability Office. The Business of Government Hour, every Monday at 11 a.m. on the Federal News Network. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, the ASPA Conference Series. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and my guest today is Bill Valdez, President of the Senior Executives Association. 
So, Bill, in the previous segment, you kind of mentioned the four pillars. I'd like to talk more about the key strategic priorities for the association. Could you kind of lay them out for us? Um, so, I think our strategies are focused on several different areas. Uh, the first is um, we believe that there is a, a dire need to modernize uh, the civil service. Uh, So the 1978 Civil Service Reform Act was a reform act, right? Uh, I mentioned previously that it was the first major piece of legislation impacting the civil service since 1883. Um, And so that was needed. Um, The things that came out of it, OPM, the Merit Systems Protection Board, the Office of Special Counsel, SES, are all strong foundations that we can build upon. But... If you think about the federal government, you know, it's been around for over 200 years and there's been an accretion of regulations and accretion of practices uh, that have really diminished the ability of leaders and people in the government, you know, the career civil service to effectively do their job. Um, I mean, it's it's everything from acquisition regulations to HR regulations. Um, The government has become so risk adverse and so afraid of making a mistake or spending taxpayer dollars inappropriately, which, you know, we're all, we're all in favor of, you know, but, you know, the, uh, this accretion of, you know, rules and regulations and this, culture of risk aversion is killing us. And when you're in the government, you know, you just say to yourself, why do I have to do this? You know, I mean, just getting a simple acquisition done takes six months. I mean, it it, it is horrifying uh, when we know that in the private sector, if you want to order a pen, (laughs) order a pen. You know, if you need to bring on a subject matter expert, Uh, You can do that. But in the federal government, it's just extraordinarily hard. And so we've come up with what we call uh, 10 considerations for civil service modernization uh, that we believe if they were followed would lead to an unsticking of this very sticky system. The second big area that we're, you know, very interested in is leadership. As I was mentioning before, leadership in the federal government doesn't mean what most people think it means. You know, because there are two types of leaders in the federal government. There are career leaders and there are political leaders. Um, And every, you know, four years, you know, there's a presidential election. Uh, every two years, there are midterms or, you know, elections of congressmen and senators. Um, and this turnover in political leadership has a very big impact on the bureaucracy. And it doesn't matter if, you know, it's what happened in the midterms in 2018, you know, when you now have, you know, uh, now the House is going to be doing all sorts of oversight of agencies that was not done in the two two years prior to that. So there's a, a paralysis that comes from that. 
when you have political leaders, Senate confirmed, uh, coming in with an administration, their average tenure is 2.6 years. Every single one of them believes that they know better than the previous uh, person who had their job. So they come in with an idea to reform and to do things differently. And then you have the career leadership. And the career leadership is there to hold down the fort, implement, you know, the president's agenda and make sure that, you know, agency missions are accomplished, you know, appropriately. Well, over the past 30, 40 years, these roles and responsibilities in the career political leadership world have really gotten gray and fuzzy. You know, who does what in the bureaucracy is really uh, up for grabs at this point at many agencies. But then also uh, the turmoil created by all of the political turmoil and turnover keeps agencies from effectively doing their job. So one of the things that we want to do is what we call bridge the political career divide. We're actually working in partnership with the you know Partnership for Public Service on this, um, and uh, we think that you know there's a real role you know for the career senior executives to work with both the administration and with Congress to make it clear you know what they could do to be more effective, <laughs> that kind of thing. And then the third thing uh, is we really do, and you mentioned it, the leadership pipeline. There is no leadership pipeline in the federal government right now. In 2017, SEA, in partnership with Deloitte, did a study of the state of the state of career leadership, is what we called it. And one of the findings that we had from that study and from that survey was that agencies do not have leadership pipeline programs. And uh, more to the point, they don't prepare future leaders. They don't help current leaders be more effective in their jobs. I mean, when you become SES, you know, it's assumed you're fully baked. Well, we know that's nonsense, right? Uh, we have all these leadership development programs out there, you know, that are run by different folks, including OPM and Grad School USA and those folks. But when those folks take those courses, you know, how do they go back into the bureaucracy and exercise their leadership muscles? I mean, I talk to those folks all the time, the graduate uh, the, from those programs, and they say the big thing is, you know, I, I get all this great stuff about how to be a leader in the federal government. And then I go back to my office and I'm put in the same command and control, you know, non team oriented, you know, uh, environment uh, that I came from. And so it's very frustrating. So we think there has to be a better model out there. And uh, thanks to the generosity of the IBM Center for the Business of Government, uh, we are uh, just about done with a study of, uh, that we're doing 
in conjunction with researchers at the University of Texas LBJ School and the University of Indiana, or Indiana University, uh, that looks at two questions. Um, are there exemplar leadership development programs in the federal government? Agency-based, meaning you know that there's been some intentional thought given to developing their civilian leadership core. And then second, what are the system level constraints that prevent agencies from developing uh, leadership development programs? And we're pretty much finished with the study. And I'm happy to report that there are some exemplar programs out there, uh, but that the system level constraints are keeping other agencies from replicating that success. You know, one of the questions I had is um, as you're as you were building your strategic vision and focusing on what the priorities are for the association, I was wondering, did you give some thought to future national requirements in terms of competencies that the SES will need to actually tackle some of the challenges that, that are upcoming? Yeah, and we're in the process of doing that right now um, through the public service leadership as a profession uh, because we do think that there are some unique competencies in the federal government that are not being, for executive branch leaders. Uh, and, you know, so some of them are, for example, political savvy. And by political savvy, I'm not talking about, you know, how do you, you know, do you know the political world, that kind of thing. It's, do you know how to interact with political leadership? Nobody really teaches that. And it's a learned behavior in the federal government. And it all gets to that career political divide um, question. Uh, risk management. Um, I mentioned that the federal government is extremely risk adverse. Um, shouldn't be that way. You know, risk is both good and bad, right? There's inappropriate risk and there's appropriate risk. And uh, if you're aware of the distinction and how you can utilize risk and risk management tools that are available, you know, to the private sector currently, uh, then you can appropriately manage your programs in terms of risk. Another is resiliency. Currently in the OPM's executive core qualifications, they have resiliency as one of the competencies under leading change, okay? But the definition of resiliency there is, are you as an individual resilient? Can you handle rapid change? Can you handle setbacks? Can you bounce back, okay? That's the way it's defined as a competency. That's not the way the private sector defines resiliency. Private sector defines resiliency as both resiliency of the workforce and resiliency of an organization. You know, are your processes and your people resilient in the face of rapid cycle disruptive change? So that's another one that we think definitely has to be reevaluated in the federal government. Mm -hmm. You know, Bill, a couple of times you've mentioned public service leadership as a profession. Mm -hmm. 
the program. I'd like you to delve a little deeper into that. Like, how are you operate, operationalizing it? What's the progress to date? And what does it actually entail in terms of the program? Well, in terms of progress, it's a relatively new initiative. Um, we spent 2018 uh, getting our act together. We had a working group uh, that was through our human capital leadership community of change that studied the problem. And then uh, we unveiled an initial framework in December, and we're now we're calling it, you know, the public service leadership as a profession framework. And the framework is a general guide to implementation. Uh, we think it's a five to ten year journey um, to really make an impact. Uh, there are some short-term things that we can do. But the essence of it is, is first, can you define the distinction between a public service leader and a military leader and a uh, private sector leader? So within the framework, we have defined what we believe is, you know, what distinguishes a public service leader from private sector and public sector, I mean, uh, military. And it essentially gets down to the oath of office and the preamble of the Constitution, which says that the purpose of the executive branch is to ensure the safety and welfare and the you know, well-being of the U.S. and its population. Okay, And so that's a responsibility that's solely given to the executive branch. And so public service leaders are charged with that. Okay, That's what distinguishes them. Okay, Then second, you know, are there unique, uh, you know, goods and services that a, a public service leader, you know, has to provide? You know, can you define what their roles and responsibilities are? And we believe, again, yes, uh, that's mandated by Congress. It's mandated by the Constitution. You know, it's mandated by presidential executive orders. Uh, what a career public service leader, you know, should be doing. And then third, you know, what are the competencies that distinguish a public sector leader from private sector and military counterparts? And that's the area where we have begun to really flesh out because that has an impact on how you select and uh, nurture leaders uh, directly. And, you know, as I mentioned, the executive core qualifications has about 28 competencies that are associated with it. And we believe that some of them are pretty good, you know, uh, but that it needs a better parsing, yeah. you know. And so we'll be we'll be doing that. And then finally, uh, what are the appraisals, experiences? What is the journey you know, the pathway, the pipeline for a public service leader. And can you define that? 
And so we are in the process of doing that as well. Are you working with any agencies? Obviously, OPM would come to mind or anybody in the government, um, maybe as a proof of concept with this framework? Or I think we have found a program that meets all of those qualifications and uh, give a shout out to the U.S. Air Force, uh, which has a program that's been in existence for 20 years. And they call it the Civilian Leadership Development Program. It has all of the things that I just mentioned. It's successful um, and could serve as a model, you know, for the uh, rest of the government um, in terms of how to do this. So, yeah. Well, Bill, you mentioned earlier um, SEA's Communities of Change initiative. I'd like you to tell us a little bit more about it. Well, thank you first for getting it right. Uh, (laughs) Communities of Change, uh, because we deliberately named them Communities of Change because most professional associations have what they call sections or communities of interest or things like that. We wanted to give the notion that uh, we want to use these communities uh, as change agents. And so we aren't holding meetings, we aren't convening them to do, you know, networking and things like that but to actually look at very big problem sets. And so one of our communities, uh, the National Security Community of Change, is gonna look at the whole resiliency question. The human capital leadership uh, community of change is, is shepherding the public service leadership as a profession. These are big, multi-year you know, initiatives that we have ongoing. And then uh, our governance innovation community of change is looking at the civil service modernization issue. So, you know, we want to tackle big problems. We want to, you know, I mentioned before that I was told by, you know, all of our stakeholders that SEA has a unique role to play as a convener and as a conduit to use the power and wisdom of career civil servants to you know help solve some big national challenges so that's why we created the communities to provide a platform you know to make to execute that that vision and the other thing we did uh, was we ex- increased membership in the SEA from strictly SES to GS-12s through 15s. And this has two different benefits. The GS-12s through 15s can participate on the communities of change and exercise their leadership muscles, you know, participate in the writing of the white papers and that sort of thing. Uh, networking, mentoring, all the rest, but it's part of that leadership pipeline, you know, effort as well. So these, so I, before we, we could talk about onboarding direct hiring authority for certain capabilities like STEM or cyber, and I would like to talk about that, but, but in the interest of time, I want to make sure we talk about a recent report, um, a study mm-hmm. that you folks released uh, on the declines in the federal workforce capabilities and um, the risk associated with this phenomenon. Um, would you highlight key aspects of the study, and has... Has the U.S. federal government reached a point where critical operations might fail because of the lack of capabilities in the workforce? 
that's certainly the conclusion of our study. Um, and I should mention that this study uh, was, you know, done by uh, Molly John uh, at uh, University of Madison, Wisconsin, David Bray, who's with the Center for People-Centered Internet, and Greg Teverton, uh, who was at the, who's currently at the University of Southern California. And this study was inspired by the idea that if we had multiple crises, you know, like a hurricane season that was combined with an earthquake in California and, you know, cyber attack on the federal government and a locust plague, (laughs) you know, in the Midwest that, that destroyed, you know, the farmland, would the federal government be able to carry out its responsibilities? Uh, we saw alarming signs that they could not, that things had fundamentally changed. And so what is it that has fundamentally changed? And we look back over 20 years, and and I think we saw two different things. Uh, the first is that the ability of career civil servants to lead programs has been greatly diminished. And there's a lot of factors that that went into this, but that there has been a a diminution of the ability of career leaders to work together to respond to these kinds of crises. Um, And then the second is that the agencies themselves, remember I said resiliency is both people and processes. The agencies themselves really have not done the work that needs to be done to prepare themselves for a whole of government response. And what you see is pockets of resiliency at agencies like DHS through FEMA, you know, DOD, you know, takes care of itself, you know, uh, USDA has an ongoing effort to ensure the stability of the food supply. But in the event of these kinds of multiple crises, the whole of government response would not come together. Did you folks make any recommendations for addressing some of these challenges? Uh, no, we deliberately stayed away from that because that's going to be part two of the study. Oh, very good. Yeah. What does the future hold for the Senior Executives Association? We will ask its president, Bill Valdez, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center special report, Transforming Government Through Technology, a companion piece to a more detailed report by the Technology CEO Council. That report outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Driving change in the federal government requires more than new policies or the infusion of new technologies. It requires a sustained focus on implementation to achieve positive and significant results. This IBM Center special report provides a roadmap for government leaders to do just that. Download Transforming Government through technology and all IBM Center reports at businessofgovernment.org.
The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center Special Report, Transforming Government Through Technology. It outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Download Transforming Government Through Technology and all Center Reports at businessofgovernment.org. This is the Center This Week, highlighting the latest trends and best practices for improving government effectiveness. Brought to you by the IBM Center for the Business of Government. I'm Michael Keegan, Managing Editor of the Business of Government magazine. The Center This Week is our opportunity to inform, and most importantly, to invite you, our listeners, to use the IBM Center for the Business of Government as your resource, a how-to resource for improving government effectiveness at the state, local, and federal level. What is strategic intelligence? What does it mean to be a strategic, operational, or networking leader? I will explore these questions with Dr. Michael McAbee, author of Strategic Intelligence, Conceptual Tools for Leading Change. So, Michael, what is strategic intelligence, and what are the core elements of strategic intelligence, and could you briefly describe each of those qualities? Strategic intelligence, first of all, let me say it's a system. Each part of strategic intelligence interacts with other parts. So you can't really take them apart. Second of all, let me say it is a quality that may not be in a single individual, but in a team. Now, it includes, first of all, foresight. Any strategy has to start out, what are the threats? What are the opportunities? What's coming in the future? And that has to be very clear at the top of any organization. But that has to be transformed into a vision of taking advantage of the threats and opportunities. So from foresight, you get visioning. But to realize the vision, to execute the vision, nobody can do it themselves. So you have to have partnering with other people who complement your abilities. And it may be with customers, it may be with suppliers, because all of that may be essential to realize that vision. But then, once you have that, you've got to be able to motivate and engage your organization to realize that. And then once you're in motion, you have to be able to keep learning. And that gets back to foresight. Now, strategic intelligence also requires that a person have a clear leadership philosophy, because otherwise you're not going to be able to engage and motivate people. We'll see that more as we go on. You need to have a clear sense of a philosophy that includes your purpose. What are the practical values essential to achieve that purpose? What are the basis of your ethical and moral decision-making? And finally, what are you measuring? Are your measurements really reinforcing your purpose and your values? Furthermore, you need to have what uh, W. Edwards Deming called profound knowledge. And that includes understanding variation, understanding the difference between causes that are based on the system, common causes, and special causes. You need systems thinking, which is crucial, because no vision today in any organization is going to really work without an understanding that you're trying to create a system where all the parts are interacting in order to further the purpose of that system. Third, you need to understand psychology, mm -hmm. and particularly personality. Otherwise, you're not going to partner very well, and as you see, you're not going to be able to understand what motivates and engages people, what brings out their intrinsic motivation. And finally, 
you need to understand how you create new knowledge because any organization today has to be able to continually innovate, continually improve, and that involves understanding the processes of creating knowledge. More information on this and other Center resources is available at businessofgovernment.org. There you will find how the business of government is not business as usual. For the IBM Center for the Business of Government, I'm Michael Keegan, and this has been The Center This Week. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, the ASPA Conference Series. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and my guest today is Bill Valdez, president of the Senior Executives Association. So, you know, Bill, um, I want to switch gears for, you know, we are outside our studio. You were gracious to join us today at ASPA, the conference, the annual conference for the American Society of Public Administration. So what brings you to the conference? Well, ASPA produces future public sector workers, you know. So they're the, it's the American Society of Public Administration, okay. And so the universities uh, that are part of ASPA are responsible for educating the next generation of bureaucrats. (laughs) Um, But what we found, and I think what ASPA has found, is that you know, two things. Uh, One is that most uh, of their graduates do not see a career in the federal government as an option. And that gets back to what I talked about earlier, perceptions about the federal government and, and then just how difficult it is to get a job in the federal government. For a new graduate, you know, with an MPA, it's just really hard. Uh, to get into the federal government. But then second, uh, from an academic point of view, uh, are they teaching the right things to their students about what they need to do to prepare for a career in the federal government? And the answer there, as far as I can see, is we need to work on it. Because in 2017, uh, I co-edited what is called the Handbook of Federal Government Leadership and Administration. And I did that with uh, David Rosenblum and and, uh, Patrick Malone. And this took a look at what is the future of leadership and administration in the federal government. And I think one of our conclusions from that book was that we need to be teaching, you know, the ASPA students many different things that they aren't being taught right now. You know, things about leadership and competencies. You know, for example, just take the whole risk thing. Okay, that's not part of a curriculum that most uh, students take when they go to ASPA, an ASPA school. But it's just absolutely critical to understand you know, risk principles. And so, you know, I think through this relationship and the reason I'm here and I'm, you know, we're going to be work SEA is going to be working closely with ASPA in the future is that we want to be po- a positive change agent to produce better students and to help get into the federal government students who really are prepared for the future. Well, you mentioned the future, and it's a great way to end. I've got two more questions for you real quick. 
What's the future for SEA? Well, it's funny you mentioned that because uh, we had our annual board retreat uh, in February, and we did what was called a flash foresighting study, I mean, for, for flash foresighting exercise uh, that was facilitated by the Toffler Associates. Uh, and it was fabulous because they took us out 10 years into the future and said, okay, given the circumstances that we can see happening over the next 10 years, what would the future of SEA look like? It was refreshing <laughs> and frightening. Uh, and I think we came out of that exercise saying, we need to do you know, a better job of preparing a leadership pipeline. We need to do a better job of uh, preparing you know, civil service modernization. And we need to make SEA ourselves uh, a much more inclusive organization working with stakeholders at not just the federal level, but at the state and local level and in the international level, because we're such an interconnected society right now uh, that, uh, you know, you know, you know, the federal executive branch, federal government, you know, is a thought leader is, is the, is the entity that everybody looks at, you know, to, to define the future. And we believe that SEA will play a critical role in that over the next 10 years. So, Bill, what, would you, what advice would you give someone who's thinking about a career in public service? Well, uh, what you know about a career in public service in the federal government is probably not the reality. Uh, you know, yes, the federal government is big. Yes, it's, you know, bureaucratic. Um, yeah, we have the holdover of the command and control, uh, you know, business. But change is coming. And you can do so much uh, within the federal government that you can't do anywhere else. I mean, the things that I was able to do in my career were just amazing. You know, I, I, I look back and I go, I, could, I couldn't have done that anywhere else. And so once you begin to think about the fact that the federal government touches the lives of every U.S. citizen and you could be part of that solution, you know, your mind expands and you're able to say, I want, to, I want me some of that, <laughs> you know. And so I think, you know, the, the real juice is, Carve out a career for yourself where you can have an impact. Well, uh, Bill, thank you for joining joining me today. Cool, thank uh, you. Appreciate it's been a lot of fun. You. Great. This has been a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with Bill Valdez, president of the Senior Executives Association. Be sure to join me next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government and its effectiveness. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan. Thanks for joining us. This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org. How 
does the work of the Government Accountability Office advance public service? What are some of the key leadership challenges facing U.S. federal agencies? Join host Michael Keegan from the 2019 ASPA Annual Conference as he explores these questions and more with Robert Goldenkopf, Director, Strategic Issues, Government Accountability Office. The Business of Government Hour, every Monday at 11 a.m. on the Federal News Network. 